Having Sage approved audio for our car rides is a literal lifesaver for my nervous system. And I love making lists of podcasts to share with him when he's ready. I was so excited to hear about a new show called Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, math, geared toward the six plus crowd. Every episode follows two best friends, Max and Molly, who work together to solve riddles and math equations during their time traveling adventures. Recently, we had some family visiting, and on our way to dinner, we popped on an episode of Mysteries About True Histories, math, with my niece and nephew in the car. In this episode, Max and Molly travel back in time to solve a mystery from the order of the problem solvers, along with lots of kid humor mixed in. It was a fun way to enjoy our car ride together and opened the door for some interesting conversation about history and understanding some of the mysteries of the past. Episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, the perfect length for car rides and meal times, and stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode 141. At the basis of development is attachment. And there are four types of attachment that we're going to dive into today. There is a goal here. When we are looking at attachment, the goal is secure attachment. All of our work at SEED focuses around how to foster and build a secure attachment with kiddos. Today, I am hanging out with Sam Casey. She is a licensed clinical social worker from Australia, a play therapist. She works with children, a children's therapist, and she's a mama. And we dove into what this looks like and how do we foster a secure attachment where kids don't feel responsible for our feelings and how do we show up for them and respond with intention because this is at the basis for all of their relationships to come. I think it's one of the most important things we can do with kiddos is work to foster a secure attachment. There are so many tangible tips and pieces of support throughout this episode. It is fire and it has been so hard not to just like release once we had it. After I did this interview, I left and was like, oh my gosh, I just cannot wait to put this out into the world. I'm so jazzed for y'all to dive into this bad boy. In this episode, we reference our free emotion coaching guide. If you want to snag that, it's totally free, downloadable. Go to emotioncoachingguide.com and snag yours today. We've got your back on this journey. All right, let's dive in. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, sleep consultant, child development specialist, and passionate feminist, Alyssa Blass Campbell. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Voices of Your Village. Today, I am here with Sam Casey. Hi, Sam. How are you? I'm good, Alyssa. How are you? I'm doing pretty well this morning. Sam, as you can hear, is in Australia, correct? That's right. 
but I found Sam on Instagram and just very quickly fell in love with her content. Sam, can you tell us a little bit about your background and kind of what brings you here? Yes, of course. So in Australia, I'm a mental health social worker. That would, I, I think, be a licensed clinical social worker for you guys in the US. And I'm a registered play therapist. I work as a child therapist and I've had a really, I guess, interesting path to that because I actually left school quite early. I left school um, halfway through year 10, not knowing what I wanted to do. And while working in a childcare centre, I saw the therapeutic values of play and how it helped children work through um, things that they were going through in their life. And I thought, wow, this must be a thing like play therapy. So I Googled it. I think we had like a nine MSN search so back in those days and um, it was a thing. And yeah, that kind of set me on my path to, to go back and finish schooling and do university. And now I'm doing my PhD, looking at child therapy and play therapy. And yeah, that's basically me in a nutshell. Awesome. And you're a mom of two? Yes, I am. I have a three-year-old and a five-year-old. Right in your wheelhouse for play therapy. Yeah. And that's been an amazing journey as well to, I guess, see how beneficial play can not only be to my clients, but to be for my children as well. And how we as parents can actually harness that therapeutic value of play. I think it's, it's really powerful. It is so powerful. And I think it's something, you know, we look at like, how do we help kids process these emotions all the time? We get these questions, obviously, in, in the work that I do. And so often what it really looks like with kids is acting everything out through play right? And being able to navigate this in a way that's developmentally appropriate for them, which is often through play. And it's so cool to see it play out. Definitely. I think from us coming as, as adults, you know, we talk things out and I think it's really, um, you know, common for, for parents to want to check in, you know, verbally with their child, but rather kind of going into that play and going into their world, we can learn so much about our child um, from, from playing with them. Yeah, especially when we can take a step back and really let it be child-led. It's so powerful. And so hard to do. We often have that desire to control the play even. (laughs) And it's hard to take a step back and let them play. Exactly. You're right. There's so much of, I think, um, ask that comes into that and to be able to, I guess, recognize that that pull to, to control it or to direct it. And it often comes from, you know, good intentions from the parent, but yeah, it can, can really squash, I guess, um, you know, their vision and where they want to direct the play to go, where that needs to go. Yeah. Yeah. Really rad. Well, I invited you on today because I want to chat about attachment theory. My colleague and I, Lauren Staubel, we co-created this method called the Collaborative Emotion Processing Method. We call it the CEP method, C-E-P. And as we were creating it and doing research in emotional development, we identified that at the core of everything that we're doing is attachment. And that when we're talking about even just who we are as humans, that being able to identify what our attachments were in early childhood is so crucial to figuring out, all right, who, what are we showing up with and where do we go from here? And then how do we support the tiny humans Um, kind of evolutionarily, right? As we're seeing that uh, wheel continue to turn. And so I want to dive in today to attachment theory and what it even means and then how it shows up and, and what we can do as the adults here what our role is in being able to sometimes rewrite patterns uh, that we didn't have as kiddos. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And it, 
And I think that um, rewriting it really comes down to having that awareness. So I definitely want to, I guess, start with, you know, those attachment styles and then flow into to how we can actually be aware of that with our own children. So I guess attachment really looks at that internal working model. So it's like internal working models of how relationships function. And so the way that we have been raised in childhood, the relationships that we have had with our parents impact relationships we have with others, whether that's our spouses or our children. So whether we are aware of that or not, it does. It influences the way that we present ourselves and the way that we function in relationships. And so, you know, research shows that a significant, I guess, predictor of our attachment style with our child is really the attachment style that we had with our parents. So we learn quite a lot from reflecting on um, our childhood patterns and I guess understanding that narrative so that we can understand how we show up in our relationships with our child. So really we're not, and I, and I really want to hone on this as well for those parents listening, we're not doomed based on these patterns that we've led to either. It's really about having that sense of insight and understanding and being able to make sense of these patterns so that we're actually acknowledging and we're processing that pain that may come from those relationships and making sense of um, that world rather than blocking it out, which is what we do as children, right? We block it out because we're in survival mode. And so often then we grow up to be adults who are not really um, understanding of, of what actually went on in our childhood. We have a very different view, memories of what actually occurred. Totally. Or even the like ability to pause and reflect and kind of dive into that so much. We have a reparenting class and so much of this reparenting class is really being able to build awareness around what are we bringing to adulthood? Because it's a, as you said, it's a practice that we don't do as kids. We don't pause and say like, oh, this is my attachment style with my parent. And so we get to adulthood and so many of us don't have a toolbox for how to do this work. Yes. Oh, exactly. And it's a very uncomfortable, it can be a very uncomfortable process, especially for those parents who still have relationships with their parents. You know, it can feel really uncomfortable to go, but hang on, my parent did the best that they could, but actually the best that they could really significantly impacted me in a negative way. And I need to be able to explore that so that I'm not repeating these patterns. So it's not really about blame. It's more about that insight. Let's talk about, I guess, those, those attachment styles, really. Um, so the first one is secure attachment. So this is really what we would want to aim for. It's as Dan Siegel um, explains, it's the four S's. So it's feeling safe, soothe, seen and secure. So when children feel like their caregiver is a safe base for them and they can explore the world and come back to them um, as that secure base, they're actually able to not only feel secure in their relationships, but also have that sense of identity. So this is who I am, but I can also connect with others in, in a relationship. So it's really having that sense of self, but also being able to actually interact positively in a healthy way with others. Yeah, this is the goal, right? That's <laughs> that the goal. Num- that's, our, that's our goal. And so many of us, you know, I, as I was listening to you talk, it's like, oh man, like seen is something that comes up a lot in our village of folks who didn't grow up feeling seen or maybe didn't grow up feeling safe to express a hard feeling. And so let's chat about what that looks like when you don't have that. What are Let's dive into these other ones. Yeah. And so even based on that point, it's really hard then to have a secure attachment with a child if you're not able, if your emotions weren't seen or heard as 
children because then what you do is you actually don't acknowledge your own emotions in that moment. So you can't give something to your child if you're not giving that to yourself. Um, so really that first step is to actually be able to regulate your own emotions, your own reactions, so that you're actually able to help your child with their emotions. Um, yeah, so the other attachment styles are, the next one is anxious attachment. So anxious attachment is basically when a parent's there sometimes and then not there sometimes. So it's sometimes the children are actually getting that emotional availability from their caregiver and then other times they're completely not and the parent's acting in the, in the basically the opposite way. So unintentionally, what the parent is doing is they're looking at their child to meet their needs rather than meeting the child's needs. And so what happens is that they're really emotionally draining their child. And so the child is displaying behaviours of being clingy. They're feeling anxious. They're feeling it could even be like a sense of desperation, even though their parents are around, because it's like you're there, but you're just not there. You're there physically, but you're not there emotionally and I'm not getting what I need from you. And so that's what makes children feel really anxious. And I know parents come to me and they're like, but I spend so much time with them and I'm always with them. And then, and they're not understanding that being with someone physically is very different from being with someone emotionally. Yeah. That presence matters. Yeah. And, and that consistency matters too. And so when children, um, I guess, grow up, then they have this internal working model of always being on the lookout, always trying to get their needs met in a relationship. And it's like, it's their responsibility. So they grow up with a sense of mistrust. Like, am I going to get my needs met in this relationship? Am I not? It's it's very anxiety producing for them. Yeah. And would this also fall into the category then of where a child feels responsible for regulating that parent? So um, say you, if you grew up with an anxious parent and you knew like, oh, if I tell them this or if they know this, they would feel anxious. So I need to make sure that I don't share that or they don't see this thing or I take care of this on my own because it would make them feel anxious. Yes, that's exactly what happens. And so and I know parents can be so fearful of sharing their emotions with their child based on this, but there is a line here, right? And I think it's very healthy for us to show our children that we're human children. We experience all the emotions just like what they do. But sharing that you feel emotions versus making your child responsible for emotions, whether directly or indirectly, are two very different things. And so you may not say to a child, you are responsible for my emotions, but if you're constantly seeking out your child to make yourself feel better or to behave in ways that make you feel good as a parent, then they are responsible for your emotions and your emotional state. Sam, can we put that on like billboards all over the place? I feel like that's at the core of everything that we do comes back to this like, your child's not responsible for your feelings. And it is anytime I share anything related to that, it's when we get the most pushback because you know what people say? They say, but this kid needs to know that their actions affect others. Mm. And I think what I want you to share here and what I'd love for you to dive into is that difference between your actions affect others and have an effect on others mm -hmm. and separating that like peer group from your attachment figure and also the like I guess there's two components the peer group to the attachment figure and the your actions affect others and you're responsible for others regulation are like yes. the two things I'd the like two, you to yeah out. and so when parents say that what I get from that that phrase is a sense of fear right because they don't realize how many steps ahead they are of that present moment so for example, when their child does something, they're like, 
they need to know the actions of their consequences because if they don't, they're going to grow up and they're going to be this. And so they've already jumped like five, ten years ahead of their child going around hurting people and and they're scared and they're fearful. And so when you're living in the future and you're living in fear, you're not actually able to be present with the child. And so that in itself is actually not being able to be with them and give them what they need in that moment because they're overrun by fear. Mm-hmm. And back to the other point as well of going, yes, there are different relationships a child will have, like with a peer group, but what they have to understand is that the parent-child relationship is very unique. And so I know for parents it's really hard when, when we talk about this concept of going, you're there really to support the child, but they're not there to support you. It can feel very equal when parents are say at home with their child all the time they're like well I'm at home giving all I can to this child they don't realize that if they're not seeking out their needs from other adults or other sources they're going to take it from their child and that's not healthy and so to to get them to understand you know what it's a very unique relationship because say in a spousal relationship right it's give and take it's it's like you meet their needs they meet your needs you're kind of like equals right but parent child they're not equals and so they really need to understand that that process of going where they're to hold our child's emotion, um, where they're to hold that space, right, for our child, but they're not there to hold us. And so we're going to have to find the resources somewhere else. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Oh, I feel like I could go deep into that, but I do want to keep moving on on attachment yes. styles. But yes, we might might have to have you back to just go deep into oh, that. That <laughs> in itself is huge. It is so huge. It's so huge, Sam. All right. So next up on our, our attachment next style. Next up is um, the avoidant, the avoidant dismissive attachment style. So with that um, attachment style, parents are meeting their child's basic needs, but they're not able to meet their child's emotional needs. So they're like, for example, they're, they're there and they, for example, giving their child food and they're like, I'm giving them shelter and I'm giving them toys and I'm giving them stuff, but emotionally they can't, they can't be there at all for their child. And so um, what children learn is that the best way to get their needs met is to not have any, mm-hmm. really. So what they do is they it's like this false sense of secure, like false sense of independence. I'm okay. I don't need anyone. I can look after myself. And so what happens is that they grow up and they're actually struggle to be vulnerable with others. They struggle to ask for help because in their childhood, right? When they were, when they were doing that, they were dismissed. They were, I guess, shunned. And in order to get love, they had to have no needs essentially. So that's a very, that's a, that's a huge, I guess, struggle because children need to be emotionally connected to their caregivers and parents need to be emotionally available. And when they're not, it create, it, it, children really struggle to know what a healthy relationship looks like, right? Emotionally, how to be connected to someone. Sammy, this one, you're describing my childhood. So I grew up as one of five kids and my mom's one of eight and my dad's one of six. And if there was any, the, the like key way to show love was to not have needs right? Because there were so many people, there was so much stress in terms of just life, like financial and all of that. My mom was a stay-at-home mom and waitress on the weekends and really worked to make ends meet and had five kids. And so all of our, I knew I had a place to sleep. I knew there would be some food to eat, all that jazz, but not having needs was like how we would show love right? And uh, not being what I considered a burden. 
So that, just to give you a snapshot of what this looks like, it looks like studying abroad, which everyone was like, wow, you studied abroad at 15. I was like, no, I ran away. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, then right in college, I was uh, homeless in New York City for a little while. Again, like not mm-hmm. having needs was so key for me. And then I wound up in this relationship, my now husband, who is such a caretaker and grew up in a very different household, a very different attachment style. And he like would take care of me, would be like, oh, I'm up. Do you need anything? Like I'm going to the kitchen. Do you you need anything? And for me, it was like, well, I can't ask him to get me something. I'm capable of getting up and getting my own Mm -hmm. thing and whatever. And I had to myself like, Trying yourself. <laughs> yes, I really did. Yeah. And, and doing reparenting work is really how I got there. But it took a lot of work. And now I still notice, like we were um, with my my family about a month ago, and I am pregnant, and I was sick and not feeling well, and yeah. just a human with needs. And my <laughs> my husband, like at one point, I thought I was going to throw up on the beach. I had had a smoothie that morning. We've learned I can't have any vegetables of any kind. And so, uh, I remember that feeling. <laughs> and so, on, <laughs> right, I'm on the beach, and I'm not feeling well. And Zach was like, do you want me to run up and like make you a piece of toast or something? So, and I was like, that would be awesome. And so he came back down with this bagel he'd run up to the house, toasted, buttered, brought it down. And I did not hear the end of it for like half hour about like, oh my gosh, like how spoiled I am and how much he takes care of me and all these things. And I was like, it was like, I could step back and see it as an adult, like, oh my gosh, like that I like felt for little Alyssa who definitely wouldn't have, I would have just thrown up on the beach. Yeah. Yeah. And because I couldn't say yes to this thing somebody was offering me because I would have felt like a burden, you know? And like, you have to really deny it's like that self betrayal, right? That you go up because you're like, this is what I need, but I have to now shove that down because I have to. Yeah. And it's so wild to see it play out in adulthood now and to see now my brothers as well, but my brothers, my parents' perception of just like, how he just, Zach, my husband just like takes care of me and does all these things for me. And I'm like, Oh no, I, I'm just have needs. And he sometimes meets them. Yeah. (laughs) It is so foreign, (laughs) right? It's so foreign for them though. And it's so foreign for our family culture, uh, Mm. that it's so interesting now to see it play out in adulthood after having done so much of this work. And now that I can see it with a different lens and can receive their comments differently. And I'm like, oh man, I, I, what I'm hearing is that like, you wish you could also have needs (laughs) or have, and that you can, and that they can express them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's so wild. This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic medical grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's gonna do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews 
and the ingredients so safe and clean they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order use code village that's www.activeskinrepair.com code VILLAGE for 20% off your order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for Mila Bean, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. I, I can so relate to that. Um, you know, I've had similar experience in my childhood and especially in the culture that I'm from. Um, I'm Anglo-Indian and, you know, I, I kind of, I have this relationship with my dad now that we can joke about it because he's kind of undertaken that growth. But I talk about having, being able to have two needs in childhood, which is content or happy, right? And then anything else was like not okay. And it's interesting as a parent now, you know, when people ask me about my child, you know, are they a good baby or were they good, right? And and when I try and dig into that or, or they talk about the kids, well, they were good. Okay, what does good look like? Okay, it means on a, for example, long trip that they didn't say anything, that they <laughs> left the whole way, that they were quiet the whole way. So I was like, okay, so good equals actually having no needs because a child that says I'm feeling a bit queasy or I'm a bit hungry or I'm sick of being strapped into the car for hours is apparently not a good child so it's it was it's really interesting looking as now an adult right and going and you know this is what they see as a good child and which is a child with no needs or just happiness or content totally and I think we also have this idea of like what and I think it's often based off of like a typically developing child with mm. a typically processing sensory system of like what does it look like what are the appropriate needs for a child uh, and when it's beyond that when it's beyond whatever our scope of what that is and I think that'll be different for different folks but I was just chatting with a friend who has a sensory sensitive babe and his needs are unique right like he is so sensitive yes. to uh, sensory stimuli and he needs certain input and regulation in order for his body to be calm and regulated and if it can seem like he's a needy baby and 
it, I, I think like being able to figure out like, who is this child? Somebody asked me the other day, mm-hmm. um, oh gosh, how did they, fr- they phrased this question in a way of like, somehow that like I had control over who the human I'm growing is going to be. And I, I don't remember how it was phrased, but that's how I received it. And I was like, oh, I'm just curious to get to know who they are, right? Yeah. Like that this human's sensory system will be unique. Like how they process the world will be unique. And I think we come into parenthood often with this idea of like what it's going to look like or who they're going to be. And so when they have these needs that aren't what we perceived as expected or typical, then it can feel like they're needy. Like no matter what we give them, it's not enough. (laughs) Oh, yes. You know, I think it it really is magnified when what people are viewing is children who are scared to actually say that they have needs. And so Mm. that's the norm rather than this is what babies do. They cry. This is what children should feel safe to do. Um, So maybe your child doesn't, you know, not have these needs. Maybe they're just too scared to express them. Yeah. Oh, that is. Oh, I love that, too. I that this kiddo just popped up into my head that I had in pre-K. He was four years old and it was the most concerned I've been for a child, at least at that point in my life where, and he was the like most well-behaved kid I've ever seen in my life. And he was so scared to make a mistake. He was so scared to not be perfect, to have something happen that wasn't supposed to happen. And he just wanted to do everything quote unquote, right. He always used the word, right. Am I doing it right? And uh, my heart just like ached for him. Cause I was like, but there is not like, you're allowed to make mistakes, but we pretty quickly realized at home, he wasn't allowed to make mistakes. There was, um, and, and he was praised for being so good and so easy and they would call it respect. <laughs> He's yeah. so respectful. Uh, and I was like, oh, my heart aches for this human. <laughs> oh, definitely. And, you know, when you look at those situations as well, right, you think for the parent, it's like, like you said, this sense of when you feel all of your, your humanness, right, you're able to share that with your child. And so, for example, for this parent to not actually be able to acknowledge, you know what, even as an adult, I make mistakes. And as an adult, I haven't got it figured out. And that's the greatest, one of the greatest gifts I feel like we can give to children is going, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to not know. It's okay to not be okay, but we're going to figure this out together. And when you see children take on this, I'm really this perfectionist kind of persona, right, of going, I need to be perfect, they feel so much pressure. The parents are feeling so much pressure in developing this perfect child and that leads to disconnection. Mm-hmm. No connection can happen when there's two people denying their self-betrayal, right? Denying their true self. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Okay. Ooh, all right. And so we've got one more, which is the disorganized, which is kind of like that last one um, where parents really their responses can be quite frightening to a child, whether the child's frightening to the parent or whether the parent's being frightening to the child, either end, they're not getting that kind of consistency. So one moment the parent may respond in laughter to a behaviour and the next time they actually go off their face and explode with anger at that same behaviour. There's no levels of consistency. So children grow up and they're not really knowing what to expect. There's kind of like no organized organization in their minds as to what they can expect from this caregiver. So um, 
they are getting a whole, I guess, I guess a whole load of like emotional turmoil. And so they do have avoidant and anxious behaviors at times. It's all really kind of like disorganized. Um, and again, there is no safety in any, in that attachment either. Yeah. That one's terrifying to me. Uh, that one for me feels like, uh, when I, when I think of that and I think of folks in my life, I think of, um, often folks who have uh, like alcohol addiction and are struggling where like once they've started to drink, you're going to get a different person and Mm -hmm. you don't know which person you're going to get at any given point. And maybe if I would have told them this thing or this thing would have happened at 10 AM this morning, things would have been fine. And now at 4 PM, that same thing happens and I'm getting a different human and just how terrifying there, there are a couple of people in my life that like, that are adults that came up for me where I'm like, Oh yeah, that's a human. We're like, I never know what I'm going to get from them. And how terrifying that is for kids to not know like who, who you have in this given moment. (laughs) Yeah. And especially from caregivers, you know, I try to explain to parents, they can have, for example, um, other family members around them. They can have peers around them, but it's really the relationship with their main caregivers. Mm -hmm their foundations setting their internal working models for this so to know that power you know like I know parents can kind of get in caught up in cycles of guilt but rather switching it around you go wow the amount of influence I can have for my child right the amount of safety I can provide for my child is huge and it doesn't really matter what childhood that we have it's really our ability to actually look back on it and to identify these things to be able to again have a coherent narrative as to how our parents treated us and how our relationships were with our parents when we were experiencing hard emotions and then again like looking at our behavior and how we can actually change that I know a lot of parents go well I had a great childhood they would play with me and they took me here and there and I'm like no 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 what did they do when you were upset what did they do when you were set me step me through what they were saying um Because I think, again, it's almost like we block it out as a survival technique and it's painful to bring up, but it's it's influencing us. It's influencing our parenting and we need to bring it up to consciousness so that we can work through it. Totally. It's something we cover in our reparenting class right from the beginning is that like doing this work, you might start to feel guilt or like you're like there's shame for diving into your patterns and habits that you developed from childhood because you're going to be looking at things that you might deem as mistakes right or things that you're like oh well I don't want to repeat this and so is this something that I'm saying my parent didn't do a good job at right and like how we might make sense of those things within our own brain and what can come up with that and 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 the reality is that yes sometimes guilt might come up and the goal here is not that all parents in the world are perfect. The goal here is that we can raise humans who can say like, all right, man, like what are things that I really loved? And you know, I loved being able to turn to my parent for this stuff. They were so great at holding space for these things. And this was one thing that like going forward, I want to learn more about because that didn't work well for me. And so I don't want to repeat that pattern or behavior. And Honestly, like I, I started doing this work because I didn't have a great relationship with my parents. And when, and so I came in with like a, oh, it's all them and all these things that they did wrong was how I came into this work. And now at this point, I've never had a better relationship with my parents than I do now. And really that for me was like 
in doing this work could realize like they're human and yeah. they truly did the best they could with what they had and they continue to do the best they can with yeah. what they have right that like I kept finding myself in early adulthood turning to them for things expecting a different result than I was ever going to get yeah. right and yeah. had to realize like oh man that is this is a pattern for a reason like th they, this is what yeah. they have to work with and I'm not going to get that from them. Uh, and so yeah. where do I get that need met? How do I get that need met? Yeah. And I think it's really good that you were actually able to separate it from you because, you know, for children, right, when they're experiencing this, when a parent treats them this way, they're not able to go, actually, that's my parent's stuff. They actually internalize that and that becomes part of their sense of self. And so, you know, you're right. We're not aiming for perfection here, actually. Even research shows it's even the best of parents are only attuned, what, I think it's 30% of the time. Um, what we want to do though is to be able to recognize ruptures and repair with our child. That's where it's at. And so when we repair with our child, what we're doing is we're actually owning our stuff. We're verbalizing, hang on, this was our stuff. And then really being attuned to their needs in that moment and being able to meet their needs. And so that's when children are able to separate that. And so, you know, I say this a lot to people, especially when they know the line I work that I do. I said, if anything, I want my child to know what is my stuff and what is not theirs. I don't want them to grow up thinking, you know what, if only I was doing this and if only I was this and mum would have been okay. It's like, actually, no, mum experiences all these emotions too, but that's mum's stuff. And then this is how mum can be there for me. Mm -hmm. um, it's been a huge process for me too, because when we're not able to have our, I guess, our emotions um, really acknowledged when we're in, in childhood, just as I wasn't, we're having to do that ourselves. And that's the, the purpose of parenting, right? It's actually going, this is what I'm feeling in the moment. I'm acknowledging it. I'm validated and accepting it. And then that's when we're actually able to be there for our child. So that's yeah. huge. Because if we're not used to that, it's really having to do that to ourselves first before we can actually do that for our child. Yeah, I think that's so huge. The rupture and repair is such a huge part of this. Oh. And, yeah. and, I think like getting real with ourselves, and like, as we're doing this work, we can start to identify like, what is our stuff? And I think it's hard to know when you're first starting out or when this feels new, because it just feels like who we are. Um, and just the other day, I, I, it's Rachel, who runs our sleep program, is so awesome at doing this as a parent. And she's had a rough freaking journey when her daughter was Two, she, Rachel was diagnosed with stage four cancer and was going through chemo and what had been the stay at home parent for her. And so had to navigate like what all that looked like and really yes. went through hard stuff right in front of her daughter that, you know, it, it, there was no separation. She's sick well, and, yeah. right? and had to learn how to navigate this in a way where her daughter didn't feel responsible for her. Mm -hmm. And she it's been so beautiful to watch I think she she really crushes this and just the other day her, her kiddo is five and a half and her oldest is and I love the crap out of her we have a sweet relationship and just the other day Rach facetimes me and she's like I'm too dysregulated to handle this right now but she needs someone she's asking for you can you talk to her and I was like sure what's going on and she's in yeah. her closet and she's crying and she ended up telling me the story she had seen a homeless person and was really mm -hmm. affected by homelessness and then wanted to solve the problem of homelessness and yeah. uh, so I just got to be present with her and emotion coach her through it yeah. but what I thought was really awesome was that Rachel was like 
hey, I need to tap into my village here. I'm too dysregulated yeah. right now and she needs somebody. Uh, That's huge, right? I think for Rachel to identify that and for any parent really, because there's two things to that. There's being able to actually acknowledge I am dysregulated because a lot of parents wouldn't see that. It would, what you'd come out and if only the child didn't do that, then I would be okay. If only mm-hmm. they that way, right? There was no kind of responsibility. So for the fact that she could do that is huge, but then to go, well, my child needs this. Two parts to it. And, and I can't give that to them right now. So how can I get this need met? So um, yeah, that's amazing. And that in itself is such a process. As parents, right, we go through, I know I go through that as much as I've been through all this training. And I know myself, I'm, I'm constantly catching myself out and going, hang on, okay, I responded in that way. Like I actually had it the other morning and um, we we're getting ready and of course running late and, you know, the kids were kind of playing and I was getting all the bags sorted and I come into my, and I had my daughter scream and I go into her room and my son's kind of done this like little science experiment on the floor there. He's got the bubbles and the water and it's all overflowing. And I'm like, why would you, and I reacted. I was like, why would you here? Like she's screaming, it's her room. You need to clean it up. Where's a towel? And as soon as I walked away, I'm like, hang on, I'm stressed. I'm late, I'm stressed, I'm overwhelmed, I don't have time for this. But him, what did he need? He was curious. He loved what he, obviously, he was trying to figure it out. He was in his zone, he was in his element. And so I went back and I was like, tell me what you're trying to do here. And he was like, well, and he told me his whole experiment. I said, how about we do this outside? Is that all right if you take it outside? He was like, yep, all right. And he took it outside. And I'm like, wow, this could have gone a completely different way. And And it did for a second there. So parents these stories I'm like hey I'm having these reactions too because hey I was feeling all these things in that moment so it's not about denying it and it's not about shaming myself for feeling that way I was feeling that way and I validated that right there was a reason why I was feeling that way but then I'm like, what does he need and how can I give him what he needs in a way that's authentic because parents are like well do I just be like permissive and let him do whatever they want and I'm like well if I said to him yay let's do this right in front of you know, like, let's do this all around the house. That wouldn't be authentic to me, right? Because that's a safety hazard. That's, you know, not in the right environment. So I did it in a way that was authentic for me while still recognizing and allowing him to get his needs met. And I think that's really the number one. It's about being authentic. Yeah. And that, that's where the boundaries come in, right? Like figuring out what are your personal boundaries here? Yours was he, not doing this in the house. Exactly. And it's healthy to have boundaries. And I think what we do as parents is, you know, it's really hard to be in that middle state, right? And what I see parents are either going completely permissive where it's like okay, they can do what they want or they go completely authoritarian, which is like, no, you must obey me. And so when we recognise this, right, our ability to sway, we are able to hold that space and going, we want to teach our children boundaries. We want to be authentic to ourselves and we want to um, have that middle ground. Children do need boundaries. They thrive off boundaries. Mm-hmm. Do that in a kind and loving way. And we can do that while we're separating our stuff and what we're frustrated with different from what they need. Totally. And I, you know, somebody reached out the other day and said something about me being patient. Uh, Cause I had shared on my stories that Zach's a much more patient human than I am. And I was like, Oh no, I'm, I thank you, but no, I'm really not a patient human. And they were like, but how do you work with kiddos and do this work? And you're not patient. Like she was like, I just don't believe that. And I was like, No, what I am is really good at defining my boundaries, right? So Mm -hmm. if, if I'm you in that scenario and I don't want them to be doing this in the house and I don't set a boundary, I'm going to lose my cool really quickly. 
I'm, mm-hmm. I don't have the patience for like, oh, yeah. this doesn't feel like it's supposed to happen like this. And now I'm feeling really impatient for it to stop, for it to, for there to be some sort of control here. And when I can take that step back and as you said, like set that boundary of, oh, I want this to happen outside. That's what feels mm-hmm. uncomfortable for me is where it's happening. It's not that it's happening. It's where it's yeah. happening. And when you can figure out like, what is my boundary here? Mm -hmm. What feels right for me here? Then I don't think we really need to call on patience a whole lot because we can set and hold the boundary within that. Oh, definitely. And I think that comes with a sense of self-awareness is what you're describing as well. Because I know I get that too. A lot of people are like, patient. I'm like, well, no, I'm able to separate. Hang on, what is it that they need? So I, for example, know that children need messy play. They need hands-on play. They need to experience life and get dirty, right? But then I also know my internal barriers towards that, right? And so I'm, but, so I don't stop them from doing that, but I also don't let them go nuts with it. And there's absolutely no boundaries. I set it up in ways where I'm like, okay, this is in a manner that there's boundaries, but you're still getting your needs met and I'm still allowing space for it. And I'm sitting with that and I'm acknowledging my stuff. And I'm, again, if we're going to do, for example, like a huge painting activity, I'm not going to let that go all over the walls of the house. I'm going to say, let's do this as an activity outside, or let's do this in this room, um, not on the carpet or not on the couches. You know, it's little things like that, that we can tweak it. So it's, again, acknowledging those internal barriers that we have, right? or these realistic kind of, I don't know, considerations, practicalities, but having that self-awareness to separate what our needs are and what their needs are. And I saw this quote, which I really feel like it really resonates with this, which is what's always, what's convenient for the parent is not always what is best for the child. And it's so true, you know, then it's really acknowledging that space as well. A lot of the things that children need are not always convenient for us. And so it's not about dismissing our needs, but it's just being really real with this is what we need, this is what they need, and being able to actually make that work in an authentic way. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist, and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions 
that help us function a little bit better. Yeah. In fact, I think kids are often inconvenient for us. Um, you know what I mean? Like they're going at a slower pace. We're walking at a different, right? Like anyone who's ever gone for a walk with a kid is like, we're, it's going to take twice as long, right? Well, like, they're living in a different world, right? They're living in the present <laughs> and everything pulls us to the past or the future, mostly to the future on that fear. Right. Right? What to make for dinner, get to school on time. What do they need? Planning this, planning that. And they just want to be in the present. And that's why for me, play is the perfect way to connect with the child in the present because you can let go of all these how things should be and what you need to do and actually just follow their lead in the present. And it's that is where we feel most, I feel like, at peace and most connected with them when we are in the present with them. And it's our fears and it's our guilt. So our guilt makes us live in the past and our fear makes us live in the future, right? And so when we acknowledge all these things, we're able to go, okay, how can I really make sense of this and process it so I can bring it back to the present. And that's what I feel like that self-awareness does is going, this is what they need. And these are my barriers. Now, how can I meet them in the present with them? And how can I enjoy this experience? Not gritting my teeth on the side, but actually be with them in that moment. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Kids definitely make me more present than anything in the world does. (laughs) I love that. We're talking a lot right now about meeting their needs and meeting our needs and them not being responsible for meeting our needs. And that this is a huge part of a secure attachment is that they aren't responsible for meeting our needs in a world where we haven't learned how to get our needs met, or maybe we didn't grow up with that. Right. Or um, there's so much, Uh, one of the biggest conversations that comes up, especially in motherhood, is this idea of asking for help or saying like, hey, this is what I need and I'm going to do it unapologetically, right? This Mm -hmm. quote unquote mom guilt comes up a lot Uh, with so many people. We run a mama's getaway weekend every year and so many people who reach out and they're like, oh, I'd love to come. And my partner said I should go, but I would just feel so guilty leaving for the weekend. And I'm like, oh, sister, you're the one who needs to come, right? (laughs) Because what you're saying is I feel like I can't take care of my needs. And what we know about secure attachment is the most important thing for you to do is to take care of your needs. Oh, 100%. And and that is, it is only when you take care of your needs that you're actually able to be present with your child and connect with them and take care of their needs. And I hear that a lot from moms too, especially for stay-at-home moms where they're like, oh, I'd be too guilty to leave my children. But then they're there, right? And they're with their child. And so they're not wanting to fully be there, but they're too guilty to say that out loud, that they're not enjoying every single moment of serving another a child, right? And, and acting like they don't have these needs. And so they're stuck because they're like, well, I'm too guilty to leave them. They need me. And, and what I try and explain is like, they actually need you in your authentic self. They need your presence. And so what do you need to do so that you are able to be present for them? Do you need someone else to watch them? Do they need to go to daycare a bit? Do they need, you know, do you need that time alone? Well, you do need that time alone, but how are you going to get that, right? So that you are able to get your needs met by something else and then come back and to be truly present. For me, I didn't realize how much guilt would be there. When I had my my first child and knowing the the motherhood, I guess, that I saw when I was a child and how that was portrayed. It was like the self-sacrificing in our culture. It was like a self-sacrificing mode, which is like, I sacrifice this for you and this is what mothers are meant to do. And and it's all about self-betrayal, really, though. It's all about denying that we have needs, but then actually being stuck 
and not being able to be emotionally present. And really it was in that moment that I'm like, I can't do this. I can't. <laughs> I can't let that win because um, I'm not showing up as, as who I truly am. And so it was really this process of going, ah, oh, what do I need? And, and what do I need that's going to actually make me more present for them? So how can I fill up my cup so I can fill up their cup? So it's not even about just having time away. It's about actually what is going to fill up our cup and not expecting our child's going to be able to do that for us or making our child do that for us. Totally. And I think that, that it really does come down to that reality that at the end of the day, you do have needs. And so if you don't meet them, someone else will be responsible for meeting them. And it might come out as a child who you just need them to not throw this tantrum in this grocery store because you don't have it in you to get out of the store with them throwing this tantrum because you haven't met your needs that they will have to tweak who they are or how they show up to meet your needs. And I I wish that we talked about it more like this so that it wasn't like, oh, just like self-care as a luxury or no, it's taking care of yourself is crucial for being able to have a secure attachment with them. Definitely. And it's actually shifting our whole perspective as well, because quite often when we are in that zone of just saving our child and, and ignoring our own needs, we, you see children grow up and their parents like, but I did all this for you. Why aren't you doing a, B, and C, because I gave up all this for you. I've sacrificed all this for you. You're meant to be doing this. You're meant to be kinder to me and you're meant to be, you know, here and you're meant to be looking after me. And so it, it just doesn't end. And we really want moms to realise this early on that what you imagine your child's going to be and growing up is going to be very different to who they actually are. And so if you have these dreams for them, you need to have these dreams for yourself. It's like the parent that's got these dreams to, you know, send their child to five different hobbies and extracurricular activities. And it's going, well, if you have this unmet need, right, to to achieve and to pursue a hobby, go pursue a hobby. That's going to be better for you and more fulfilling because you're not trying to control someone to have an interest in things that you actually have an interest in, but you don't want to do yourself. So, because it's too selfish, right? Or whatever they've told themselves. Um, so I feel like it's actually really living out their purpose so that they don't live through their child. So I feel like it's a whole perception, really, a change. And so it's, like you said, it's more than self-care. It's more than bubble baths and just taking time out, shopping and this and that, right? That This is part of the picture. But I think a lot of it is actually looking at our expectations and being true about what are we expecting for our child and is this fair? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really been... I think we struggled as at least here in the US and and I'm not sure what the picture looks like there in Australia for y'all, but the narrative here really specifically around motherhood, although parenthood in general has been this like selflessness and, oh, if you're going to do that, you're going to do it with some guilt. Like that as just like, that's the expectation in motherhood here. And we, so we were at this place already, I feel like culturally where self-care wasn't happening. And it wasn't happening as like a badge of honor. <laughs> then, then coronavirus hit and all of a sudden everybody was in a dysregulated state and mm-hmm. their village was stripped away. Kids couldn't go to school. They couldn't go to childcare, right? Like parents couldn't leave the house for work and they're trying to, and already there was this basis for not taking care of ourselves. And then we added on this pandemic, right? Pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And when that happened, I think it just like really shined a light 
on our culture around self-care where now what I keep hearing over and over is this like, we, well, we can't take care of ourselves because we're doing this. Like this is so overwhelming that we can't, I'm like, no, there has never been a more important time to take care of yourself than right now. And what that looks like is going to be different for everyone. Like maybe what taking care of yourself looks like is eating food all throughout the day, right? Like not, not forgetting that you need to be fed too. (laughs) Or maybe it's saying like, Hey babe, I would love to play with you. I'm going to set up this schedule so that you know when I'm going to play with you. And so that there are breaks carved in there for me, where I'm going to read my book or I'm going to carve out time to be working, or I'm going to do something that isn't about you, the child. Yeah. That um, brings me joy, right? As a human being. And so then I can be more attentive to what brings you joy and I can be there with that. And you're so right. I feel like there's this um, overarching thing, especially with mothers where it's like, well, they, you know, I can't do it, doing it all right. You know, they can't do it all. And this whole focus on really just focusing on your child. And I hear that so much of mums going, well, they're going to be older and I'll wait till then. Or, you know, they're only going to be little for a, a, a small period of time. And it's always laden with this guilt, right? Mm-hmm. Right. We can't do it all. So how about we put down the excessive amount of housework that women do when we put down the guilt, the shame, the expectations of everyone else and actually look at going, what I need to do as a woman, right? And as a mom is to live out my purpose, to be true to myself, to meet my needs and be someone that I can actually say to my child, you inspired me, not I sacrificed this for you, but actually going, you know what? Inspiration, like I'm being the best version of myself so that you can benefit from that rather than going, I'm going to sacrifice being the best version of myself because I think that's what you need and I'll do that stuff later. Where is the benefit to the child? The child doesn't get to see this amazing version of what you can be because you're putting that on hold rather than going, I can actually do that. I can I can be true to who I am and still be a great mom. And being a great mom isn't being a great housekeeper, by the way. And it isn't being a great, you know, meeting everyone's needs and expectations. So um, yeah, I feel like it's a complete shift that we need for mums as well and then to give them those tools too right to go this is how we can actually be there for our child not in the ways that we were told from previous generations of slaving after everyone's needs and and doing all the cooking and the cleaning and and all that but actually this is how you connect with them emotionally this is how you can play with them to connect with them emotionally and then you can actually you know start doing that for yourself right and Mm -hmm. start self-joy and acknowledging your needs and being there for yourself too so um yeah, lots of work to be done, I think, in that space. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Meeting our needs first is what keeps coming up for me in this conversation. Yeah, we were on the beach with a family a couple of weeks ago, actually, the Rachel crew. And one, one of the little kiddos there's four years old, this little girl, loves touch and wanted to be on me. And I got to the point of the day where I was like feeling touched out and also nauseous, just like pregnant, nauseous and being in the heat. And she came up and she was like coming to climb into my lap. And I said, Oh babe, I don't want anyone to sit on my body right now, but if you would like to sit in the chair next to me, I could hold your hand. And she looked at me like, wait, what? (laughs) And just like took a beat. And I was like, you really wanted to sit in my lap and snuggle. And I was like, you know what? My belly's feeling a little bit sick right now. If you would like to hold my hand, if you want to touch, I can hold your hand right next to me in the chair. And she was like, okay. And like took it and sat next to me and held my hand for a little bit and then went off and played. But um, her mom came up to me later. It was so, it was like, I needed to set that for me. Otherwise I wasn't 
going to really. But I think it's so powerful that you set that for her too, because what often I see is, you know, especially adults, they're just trying to distract the child away, right? Like mm-hmm. often, oh, look at this, like look at this shiny thing, or let's put on the TV and not again acknowledging what the child was trying to seek out in the moment, but rather just distracting them to avoid a situation where they might, I mean, she might not have accepted your explanation, right? Yeah. Um, and so I feel like that fear often gets parents to not even explain it to them. But I loved what you did because you showed how attuned you were into what she needed and you acknowledged that. And you, then you set your boundary, which I think is so good for them to be able to see so that they know that they can do that. Yeah, absolutely. And her mom came up later and was like, I didn't know that was a choice. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it is a choice. It is a choice. And again, this like selflessness to the point of uh, like self-betrayal uh, is, a, is such a common thing. And I, I love this around the topic of attachment because it, at the core of what we want is the secure attachment. We've got to meet our own needs so kids aren't responsible for them. Definitely. And I think attachment sometimes gets thrown around with like attachment parenting, right? Oh, and so ooh. that's when parents get a bit confused. So like I, I must, you know, follow them and and in order to not break that attachment I must you know give into their every demand and every need and so it becomes that that anxious attachment right because they're not actually setting boundaries and they're not honoring themselves and then they get to the point where they probably explode because they're like I can't take this anymore um rather than actually being able to set those boundaries in a healthy way and for children to know it's not from a lack of love but if anything it's self-love right and it's and it's meeting their needs by acknowledging what they want, but actually holding that space. And I feel like that's what children need, not a distraction, not dismissing their emotions, but actually to have someone acknowledge it and to set a boundary and then and then help them or give them that situation where then they can work through that. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought up attachment parenting before we wrap this up because they are not the same. Attachment theory and secure attachment is not attachment parenting. In fact, attachment parenting is not fostering a relationship for secure attachment if you follow like attachment parenting as it's laid out that like it is about often giving up our needs for them yeah i think exactly and i think also as adults we're not realizing how uncomfortable it is to sit with a child's emotions and that's really the problem that we need to acknowledge and going how are we feeling when our child cries and when our child is displaying really intense emotions, because that's going to tell you how you respond to that. If you're like, I need this to stop, that's when you would be like, okay, going to give in. Okay, I'm going to distract. So, yeah. yes, our, our reactions can actually teach us a lot about ourselves and can really, yeah, help us on this journey. Oh, it's so huge. We see that a lot with um, sleep. You know, Rachel runs our sleep program, and she, for the first two years before she got cancer, followed attachment parenting and has shared openly and see like her journey of realizing, oh no, like I wasn't, and, and, and the effect it had on her kid's sleep in using attachment parenting for sleep, where she was like, no, when my kiddo cried, I needed to make it stop. And I needed to like make sure, and she was like, I was doing it in my mind as like, I'm meeting her need. I'm showing up for her. Um, she was like, but really what it was, was that I wasn't comfortable with her saying, I'm disappointed that you're not rocking me to sleep. Yeah. And so she was like, I would just go in and rock her every yeah, time throughout so the night. That realization, right? Yeah. 
totally. We see it a lot in sleep. There's, I, I, again, I'm not sure what it's like in, in Australia for y'all, but here there's definitely like a, either cry it out is one approach where we like, we respond to nothing <laughs> or yes. the like, at the end of the spectrum. Yeah, the, exactly. The yeah. other end of the spectrum. And we really fall in the middle of like, how can we support kiddos with expressing their emotions and saying like, this isn't how I want this to happen tonight. And us saying, I hear you and I'm going to support you. And I'm doesn't mean I'm going to like rock you to sleep or whatever. Being able to meet that middle ground here as well. Just that that two ends of the spectrum and actually, you know, dealing with our uncomfortableness around that and being able to hold that space for them and actually going, yeah, this is not the way that you wanted it, but yeah, being able to, be in that moment and not trying to fix it by totally going to those ends of the spectrum so yeah I'm glad that you yeah brought that up too (laughs) yeah it's I think it's something that's different around you know a it's the end of the day so I think parents are often like at the end of their rope and they really don't have a whole lot left to give and (laughs) (laughs) right um and the idea of like a kid you know, maybe you're not sitting next to them. Maybe it depends on what kind of approach, but it, 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 it there definitely seems to be a different categorization around expressing emotion uh, with sleep than throughout the day here. Uh, yeah. It's interesting to see. Oh, Sam, I feel like I could chat with you and hang with you for a while. This is so fun for me. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. Thank you so much for, for joining me and hanging out with me. Where can folks connect with you? I absolutely love following you on Instagram. Where can folks find you? Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Um, yeah, my Instagram would probably be the best way people can follow me. It's Sam Casey, child therapist. Um, so if you yeah, want to pop on there, I share quite similar stuff to what I talk about here on that reparenting journey. Um, yeah, conscious parenting, play therapy. So, yeah. Thank you Enjoy so me. much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community for all of you to be a part of so that we can all gather together to raise emotionally intelligent humans? Head on over to Facebook search seed and sow colon voices of your village and dive into that Facebook group. We cannot wait to hang out with you and collaborate on raising these tiny humans. If you're digging this podcast, head on over to Apple podcasts, scroll down, click those stars and leave a review. It really fills my heart to hear from all of you. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.